Welcome to this podcast from the Bay Church. We hope you're blessed by the message. To find out more, please visit our website at www.the-bay-church.org.uk. Okay, we are uh, we're continuing with the new teaching series, and today we're following on and we're looking at encountering God's forgiveness. I've uh, recently been reminded that most Christians take a pick and mix view of their theology. I'm sure you're all familiar with pick and mix. There you are. A nice gory picture of pick and mix. It's that incredibly expensive sweet selection process that you get from Woolworths or outside cinemas, you know, just as they're taking the children in and you have to drag them past. Um, I think everything there is probably at least 99% sugar, so it's probably got no nutritional value at all. Our pick and mix approach to theology is influenced by our upbringing, our character, our experience of life, and the teaching that we get at church. So we go along and we think, mm, I'll choose a bit of grace. I'll have a double helping of forgiveness. Not too much judgment. One or two manifestations. You know, it's a bit like a, it's a, bit like a theological buffet. You know, you go along with your plate and your pick bits. Now we're all prone to do this to a greater or lesser extent. That's how you've managed to pull together your theology, what you believe, it's been taken from strands of things you've read or experiences or revelation that you've received. And it's because that we sometimes have this rather scatty way of, of pulling together what we believe that, that I believe that our theology, what we believe about God, needs to be subject to the Word of God. I didn't get an amen last night, but I got an amen this morning. <laughs> now, I'm sure most of you will agree with me about that, although I'm probably not saying what you're thinking. And as most of you know, there's nothing new there. Very often I say things that you're not thinking. Because I don't mean, when I say that, I don't mean being subject to what we call the written word of God, the Bible, Scripture, I'm not talking about being subject to scripture. Well, not first and foremost, anyway. Why not? Because invariably, when I meet somebody and they tell me that their theology, what they believe, is subject to the written word, what they really mean is what they believe about God is based upon their personal interpretation of scripture. Now, that is a completely different thing. Completely different. So what I'm talking about is, I mean that our theology needs to be subject to the living word of God, to Jesus. We need to be open to the spirit of God speaking revelation and life into our heart and into our spirit. And when he does this, and I'll tell you, he loves doing it. He will drive a coach and horses through your theology because he just loves doing it. Because he's not there to protect what you have put in a box and believe. He's there to bring life, to bring life to you, you see, and revelation, you see. So when he does this, 
it should and will cause us to rethink, to change, to expand our theology and our understanding and experience of God. Because this rethinking of what is what the Bible calls repentance. That's what repentance is. So think about this. When was the last time you repented of your theology? When did you last change your mind concerning your understanding of God? Because that's what the word repentance means. It means to change your mind, to think differently, and to act upon it. So I thought rather than pray at the end, we're going to pray right now. So I'm going to get you up. Come on. You're already too comfortable. I want you to put your hand on your heart or thereabouts. And I want you to repeat after me. Now, if you're one of these cautious people that think I might be leading you into heresy, you can just mumble. <laughs> Nobody will know. So repeat after me. Holy Spirit, I stand in the light of your truth. I give you full permission to speak revelation truth into my heart and spirit. Remove all mindsets and strongholds that I have built to defend my false beliefs. Use my reason to interpret your thoughts and understand your ways. Manifest your glory through me on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Thank you very much. I did that last night and we had some latecomers. I had some latecomers and they just came in as we were doing the prayer and they thought we'd finished. They looked so happy. Now, our pick and mix approach to belief can become a type of syncretism. There you go, word of the day, syncretism. What, what does syncretism mean? Well, it was something that the early church struggled with. It's something that Paul had to grapple with, with the old Gnostics, and it's alive and well in the church today. Syncretism is the combining of different religions, cultures, or schools of thought, right? Now, the root or the roots of our Christian belief are firmly planted in the rich soil of Hebrew thought. Amen. Thought that would please Isabel. <laughs> but exposure to Greek thinking has led many Christians to embrace a works-based approach to understanding God. That's syncretism. That's what it's all about. A mixture which therefore distorts. I'll give you a very, very simple example of syncretism, which all of you do. Except me. All of you do this. <laughs> Every one of you will happily embrace this. Christmas. Christmas. What a hodgepodge of imagery, messages, and beliefs Christmas is. That 
awesome wonder of God becoming flesh, of God entering into our human condition, of the incarnation. And it's mixed up with a jolly red-suited man who promotes a works-based reward system. It is true. Now, I can understand the world doing this, but I am gobsmacked that the church embraces this as well as it does and as readily as it does. I mean, it's interesting to note that when the church celebrates the birth and death and resurrection of Jesus, the two key things in many ways, both are deeply life-changing and significant, and they are cluttered and confused with irrelevant imagery and tradition. So if you think I'm getting at you, I'm getting at you. <laughs> now I've got a short clip which failed miserably last night, but I'm hoping it's gonna work this morning. I've got the, a short clip of a Scottish theologian who expresses this problem well, right? I hope you can understand the accent. I said that last night, and Alice was sat there, she nearly fell off her chair. Thought I was having a go at the Scots, <laughs> which I was. <laughs> so, here we go. Are the Easter Bunny and Jesus best pals? <laughs> Is the Easter Bunny in the Bible? Does Jesus totally love chocolate? <laughs> Out of the mouths of babes? To encounter and experience God's forgiveness, we need to understand the death and resurrection of Jesus. For example, have you heard it said, or has it even been said to you, that God won't forgive you if you are harboring unforgiveness in your heart? You heard that? Right. Many Christians think that and think that they have to do something before God will forgive them. They think this partly because of something that Jesus said in Matthew 6, verse 15, which says, if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Well, that seems pretty black and white, or black and white and yellow. Anyway, doesn't it? Straightforward. But it's when we take verses like that and then stick them on a post-it note and stress over them, it exposes our approach to Bible study and how we read the Bible. Because when did Jesus say that? He said that on the Sermon on the Mount. So it was actually an old covenant environment and it was actually old covenant teaching into an old covenant environment. And the very condition for forgiveness that Jesus preached about on the Sermon on the Mount, he himself satisfied on the cross. So what are we doing as Christians dragging, because the confusion is it's Jesus, so it all must be good, we think. But we have to differentiate between what are we talking about? Are we talking Old Covenant here, or are we talking New Covenant here? And very often we take Old Covenant teaching and we apply it to our lives and we get messed up because we are not under the Old Covenant. Because a New Covenant of grace and forgiveness between God the Father and Jesus, Jesus who's, who actually represented humanity, was sealed at the cross. 
That's why we need a whole Bible theology. We need to read the written word through the lens of the, of the living word. We need to, when we, when we take a passage or when we're studying a passage, we need to think, where's this come from? Who was it said to? And how does this relate in relation to what Jesus has already done? We need to filter everything that we read through Jesus and the finished work of the cross. Before the cross, Jesus preached forgiveness as a law to be kept. After the cross, it was a free gift to be received. Big difference. The cross changed everything. And there was no chocolate, no egg hunts, and no Easter bunnies inside. So forgiveness is now a noun, not a verb. Some of you who didn't do well at English might struggle with that. <laughs> because of the cross, God has already forgiven you because forgiveness is a gift, not a work. He forgave you before you confessed. He forgave you before you repented. In fact, he forgave you before you were even born. How's your pick and mix theology going? God has forgiven us completely and for all time. The grace of God has many expressions, but forgiveness is one of the biggest. In Hebrews 9, verse 26, or the latter part of it, it says, He, that's Jesus, has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. At the cross, the sins of the world were dealt with. Forgiveness is now a done deal. Through the cross, God has dealt with your sins whether you believe it or not. If you don't believe it, then his forgiveness will be of no benefit to you. But he has dealt with your sins. I cannot emphasize it enough. Forgiveness is a done deal. Yeah. There are no more sacrifices for sin. Yeah. When we receive this free gift of forgiveness, it changes us. It frees us from guilt. It frees us from condemnation. It liberates us from the captivity to sin. The moment we put our trust in Jesus and what he accomplished on the cross, his forgiveness, which was there all the time, becomes real to us. Now, there are two ways. There are probably more than two ways, but there are two main ways that you can screw up on this. Because we're very good in the church at taking something and then making a mess of it, aren't we? So there are two ways we can get this wrong. The first way is that we tell people they must do something before God will forgive them. Right? That could be pray more. That could be repent. That could mean all the good language. Tell them that that's what they've got to do. But that is called law. That's works driven. That's you doing something. Now, the second way that we can get it wrong is to tell people that because they are forgiven, they're also saved. That's quite different, that's a bigger word, that's 
universalism. It's a much bigger word. And universalism has got a logic to it, which has got a slight little flaw to it. That's the, that's the most dangerous type of logic or truth, isn't it? The one that's, that's, that's 95% true. Because universalism follows this following logic. It goes, Jesus died for the sins of the world, therefore everyone is forgiven, so we're all saved and going to heaven. Now the first two statements there are true, but the third one is not true. That's because forgiveness does not equal salvation. You need to get hold of this, right? Because there's a lot of confusion about this. Forgiveness does not equal salvation. Although Christ died for the sins of the world, not everybody is saved. Forgiveness is a manifestation of God's grace. Salvation is not the absence of sin. Salvation is the acceptance of God's grace. There are many people chained to sin through hurt and unforgiveness. They can't let go of the sins of those people who have wounded them in the past. Others can't let go of their own sins where they screwed up in the past and they can't forgive themselves and they're stuck in the past with their minds full of hurt. Some people turn to religion for comfort but religion without grace only makes things worse because you end up having to graft for it and you never get there because you never can. The only thing that can free a person is the revelation of God's grace. When God speaks that truth into your heart and into your spirit, it's not something which is an intellectual thing, it bypasses the brain, thank goodness, it just goes wham, straight into your spirit. But you have to be open to receive that revelation truth. Too many of us are guarded, too many of us have got our theology, we carry it around in a little box, and we, we, we're frightened we're frightened that we might get it wrong. We have to be open to being taught by the teacher, the Holy Spirit, who is only too happy to speak that truth into your spirit. The good news is that forgiveness is powerful. It heals, it restores, it liberates, it brings reconciliation. Sadly, many Christians are totally wasting their time trying to manage their own sin in their own strength. They live their life with an unhealthy sin consciousness. Don't do this, don't do that, better not read that, better not go there, better not watch that film. And then that overspills onto, you shouldn't be reading that book either, you shouldn't be going there either, you know. You're meant to be, you call yourself a Christian and you're reading that book, you go into that, you listen to that music. It's an unhealthy sin consciousness. They are dominated by sin because they're trying to clear out their life. The motives are good. They're trying to clear out their life. But when you focus in on something, you're actually giving it more importance than it needs to have. Don't forget this has already been dealt with at the cross, but you've taken it on as an old personal little crusade try and sort it out in your life. Wasting your time totally. What you should be doing is embracing the righteousness that Christ has given you. Christ took all your crap on the cross and he said, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna give you instead my righteousness. What a swap. 
spot as well. So instead of being dominated by sin thinking, we need to embrace the righteousness of Christ and live our life in that way. We will stumble, of course we will. We will sin again, of course we will. But at least our emphasis and our view is on something completely different, not down in the gutter. Here's a good quote. The Christian life is not about avoiding sin and hell any more than marriage is about avoiding adultery and divorce. That sums it up well for me. Nobody goes into marriage thinking, there they are still at the altar and they're fretting away. Well, you know, I mean, got to keep together, you know, and we don't want to commit adultery. I mean, it's just a nonsense. You look about building your life together. And that is what the Christian life is, building the life together with God. Sorting things out as you go along, but not focusing in on sin. The gospel's not an invitation to engage in soul searching and fault finding, either in your own life or, as we've already said, in other people's. The gospel is the emphatic declaration that you've been completely and eternally forgiven through the blood of the Lamb. Now that is good news. That is worth telling people about. To go out into the streets and tell people that they are already forgiven and all they need to do when we say repent is think differently and embrace the forgiveness that God's already got for them. But, there's always a but, isn't there? What happens to someone who dies and has not accepted God's grace? has not embraced the forgiveness that God had for them all that time. Through the 70 odd years of their life, their forgiveness was there waiting to break into their life and transform them and they spurn it. They just turn away. What happens to that person? When was the last time you heard any teaching on hell? Well, you're gonna hear some now. <laughs> because it's not something that Christians talk about very often. It's not like you chat over coffee about it. It's just, it's one of those subjects, it's almost like the elephant in the room, in a way. You either believe it, but you, do you really believe it? And what do you really believe? Is it just too awesome to believe? Awesome in the wrong sense of the word? It's definitely not the top of people's pick and mix belief selection. Oh, we'll have a bit of grace and definitely a bit of hell. But most Christians in some way, I would say statistically, believe in hell, right? But let me ask you another question. If hell didn't exist, would that change your lifestyle at all? It would for some Christians, I'm sure, because you, you hear them talk, and in a way their salvation's almost like fire insurance. The view on the street out there, the popular view, should we say, of hell, if they believe in hell at all, is that only really bad people go to hell. Really bad people. Like Hitler. Like mass murderers. Like child killers. Really, really bad people go to hell. And it's a place where the devil and his demons who are just waiting to greet you 
like the welcome team on the door, <laughs> and they will torment. <laughs> they will torment these bad people for the rest of eternity with these toasting forks and things, prodding them. <laughs> Whereas everyone else and their dog and their budgie will go to heaven, sit on a cloud, play a harp, and increase the number of angels. That's the popular belief about hell. The wording of every Church of England funeral service that I ever took or attended says basically that everyone's going to make it, that everyone is okay. Everyone's going to go to a better place. I've only taken three, and that was when I was a lot more black and white than I am today, and I was in my, yes, I was. That's, this was 40 years ago when I was in my 20s, and I took one, one burial and two cremations. And I was amazed at the wording of the, of the actual order of service. And I read it and I thought, so who buries the sinners? <laughs> Is it the Baptists or the Methodists? <laughs> They're the ones that bury the sinners. Because reading this, everybody's making it. Everybody's going to a better place, you know. So there you are doing the funeral for Uncle Jack and his family's there and Uncle Jack's been a bit of a lad. You know, Uncle Jack, you know, not too bad, but a bit of a lad, you know. And so there's people sat at the back and they're listening to it and then the minister's saying that Uncle Jack's going to a better place and the people at the back are thinking, well, I, I'm, I wasn't as bad as Uncle Jack, so I must be okay. I must be going to a better place as well. I used to have two versions of the order of service. One for sheep and one for goats, <laughs> right? And unless I was 100% certain that the person I was burying, for want of a phrase, was a Christian, I would use the goat's version. And you only had to tweak it ever so slightly. They never noticed. They never noticed the difference. But I knew the difference. <laughs> I knew the difference that I wasn't giving them an ironclad cast, iron, you know, promise that everything's hunky-dory. I wasn't. You just change a few words and you can do it. And I felt a lot happier. I felt in good conscience I wasn't leading them astray. Not the ones that were dead. I mean, they were dead already. <laughs> but the ones that were listening, the ones that were listening were the ones I was concerned about. So currently, within the Christian church, there are three views of hell. Pick a mixed time, folks. Three views of hell. Now, this is not an exhaustive, systematic study. This is just a brief overview of hell. The first one, the traditional view, with flames to match. And what the traditional view says is, there will come a time when the dead will be resurrected and everyone alive at that time will be changed in the twinkle of an eye, and we will receive resurrection bodies. And those who died outside Christ will also be resurrected, and will also receive resurrection bodies. Everybody is going to be resurrected and receive a body. And we will all live for eternity after judgment in one of two places. The believers, those who are saved, will be judged for reward and they will go to heaven. 
eternal bliss. I say heaven, but we all know it's like a new heaven and a new earth, but I'm just using shorthand here, okay? Heaven. The unbelievers, the unsaved, will also be judged by God, but not for reward, for punishment. And they will go to hell and remain in a state of everlasting conscious torment and regret. This is the gnashing of teeth bit. This is the thrown into the lake of fire bit, okay? This is the traditional view of hell. This is what some of you believe. It reminded me of a hymn. One of the verses of the hymn said, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we'd first begun. Amazing grace. Verse seven of Amazing Grace, and it's referring to heaven. It's saying when we get there, after 10,000 years, that's nothing. There's still so much more of God to experience. It'll be fantastic. Funnily enough, that verse was, actually wasn't written by John Newton. It was written by somebody anonymously about 60 years after he finished writing Amazing Grace, and they just slipped it in. I, mean, it's one, I think it's one of the best verses, to be honest. But 10,000 years was probably a very long time and a very big number in 1829. It probably represented the age of the earth in current thinking. But we deal in much larger numbers nowadays. You know, billions, trillions. A trillion is a thousand billion. That's a big number. So just think, within the concept of the traditional view of hell, after 10 trillion years in hell, people will still be in a state of everlasting conscious torment and regret. It's a long time. And that's just the beginning. So that's the traditional view. There's then the universalist view. We've already touched a little bit on universalism. Their view is that we are eternal beings. We all live forever. And when we die, we all go to heaven. Because God is so loving that he wouldn't exclude anybody. He wouldn't build a wall. He wouldn't have immigration quotas. He wouldn't exclude anybody at all. God, the love of God is so powerful that everybody will make it. So that's, there's also a slight variation that they believe, which is that the believers will go straight to heaven, but unbelievers will go through a period of restoration, refinement, before going to heaven for the ultimate reconciliation. So there may be a slight delay while they get sorted out a bit, but they're all going there. Everybody's going there. A surprising number of believers are embracing this view. Whether they embrace this view because they cannot mentally or emotionally cope with the horrors of the traditional view, I don't know. My understanding is, it seems to me, that of all three views, this one seems to have the least scriptural support. Then the third view is the annihilation view. 
This says that believers, those who are saved, will live forever with God in heaven. Whereas unbelievers, those who are not saved, although they will be raised from the dead and will receive resurrection bodies, they will not be given immortality. Now, one of the big arguments and debates within this whole area of hell is, are we immortal beings or are we not? Now, if you think you are, if your theology tells you that all human beings made in the image of God are immortal per se, then you've got a problem. It's a bit like the problem that Jesus had. What do we do with the devil and the demons, that the fallen angels? Now they've screwed up because there's no repentance. There's no, there's no heaven for fallen angels or for the devil. So what do you do with them? Because they are immortal. It says in the Bible that God created hell to deal with the devil and the fallen angels. A place to put them. So, within evangelical thinking, what has started to happen is they've started to talk about something called conditional immortality. Immortality with conditions, basically. And the view that they take is that all humans are actually mortal, not immortal. And that we depend entirely on the grace of God for our existence. And that eternal life is only made possible through the resurrection of Jesus and that immortality is a gift that God bestows upon those who are saved at the resurrection of the dead. Right? So that is when immortality is bestowed on those who are believers when they're risen from the dead, God bestows on them immortality and then they're off to glory. So immortality, according to this thinking, is not in the Bible and is Greek thinking, it's Hellenistic thinking. But immortality is a gift bestowed by God. And that those who are not saved, after a finite period of punishment or conscious torment, however you want to describe it, these believers are punished with permanent destruction, the second death as it talks about in Revelation. So they're wiped out completely and utterly. They don't exist. And they point to texts like Matthew 10, verse 28, that says, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So they use texts like that. Now, whereas the traditional view was, that, was the one that was most commonly accepted, more Bible-believing Christians now, are, especially evangelicals, are moving towards this annihilation view. If you, want to, if you want to look at this whole area of traditional hell and other concepts, there's an excellent website called Rethinking Hell, it's called. Rethinking Hell, where people are grappling with it. People like John Stott, Remember John Stott? He, in, the, in those latter days, moved over to an annihilation view rather than a traditional view. And he was ridiculed for it. The evangelical, his evangelical peers ridiculed him because he had gone down that path. 
But what they are saying is that this isn't an emotional thing, but this is that when you look more closely at Scripture, there is more substance in holding an annihilation view than there is to hold a traditional view. And it's more in line, they say, with God's character. I'm going to finish just reading a bit from 2 Peter, which says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance, everyone to change the way they think, everyone to realize that the God, God's forgiveness is there to be received. That's not in the Bible, I just added that bit. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live good, holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Amen? Amen. Amen. Thank you.